Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so that we can you know, actually develop products that our customers love. And as a reminder, this episode and how this podcast is made possible is brought to you by the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, the RPM Experience, which is the fastest way for product VPs to help their product managers and everyone else contributing to products to increase performance and really make meaningful changes. It's different from training, it's an experience. If you wanna find out more, go to productmasterynow.com RPM to see how it can help you. Today, we're taking a product journey, and I just love product journeys. We're exploring how an insight came about, some unmet need, and how that turned into a valuable product over time, and now a rapidly growing company as well. I love hearing these stories of products journeys, and I also enjoy sharing them here, because I think there's always something, regardless of your role in product, to learn from other product stories, even outside your industry, we often get really valuable insights. So I'm looking forward to some of those insights that we'll no doubt gain together. Joining us is Matt Dana. He graduated magna cum laude from the Rochester Institute of Technology, where he focused on web development and human-computer interactions. His professional career has been entirely around product roles, most often serving as product VP or head of product. And during his experience, he became aware of an opportunity to better serve small businesses that needed to frequently make and manage client appointments, right? A real-world problem, which is what we want to be solving. And now he's the co-founder and CEO of a company called Boulevard, which provides a SaaS platform for spas and salons to increase sales, in part by increasing client bookings and decreasing no-shows. I'm really curious about how his path through product work led to some insight here to create this product now. As a reminder, we do take detailed written notes for you. Uh, Everything that we talk about, we put into a good written summary for you. We also create a one-page action guide for you to take action immediately on the key takeaways that we'll be sharing. You'll find those at productmasterynow.com slash 392. Matt, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Chad. I'm excited because I I do like a good product story. I want to back up a little bit before we get to the actual story part and hear your story somewhat, right? So you you have that tech background. You got interested in web development and human-computer interaction, you know, user experience type topics, went to a really Mm -hmm. good school. Where in the history, maybe it started long before that, did you, you have some affinity for doing product sort of work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was always the kid that grew up playing with Legos and connects and uh, even, you know, younger with like Lincoln logs and building things. And at the same time doing a lot of, you know, finger painting and, uh, and really, you know, explored the creative and artistic side. So yeah, I think growing up, I had this, like a little bit of like this identity crisis of like, do I want to be technical and go into computer science or do I want to go into graphic design? And I made the decision to go into information technology simply be because of the post-graduation rate salaries at the time and going to and keeping you know graphic design as a hobby. So I've always kind of you know straddled the two worlds and you know, product has been a way that they've been able to join in a pretty elegant way. So it's a really fun place to be and it stimulates, you know, the left brain and the right brain in all the right ways for me. And it's a lot of fun. So yeah, absolutely. I was one of those kids too that enjoyed putting things together, much to my mother's chagrin, also enjoyed taking things apart and Same not for necessarily me. putting them back together for her, like, you know, kitchen appliances. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I think I had an easy bake oven as a kid and I took it apart to learn how it 
burnt. Yep, yep. <laughs> right? my, yeah. my best Christmas gift, I think, was when I was like 10 years old. And they gave me the old dishwasher. They, they bought a new dishwasher and I got the old one. Like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Loved it. Okay. Interesting journey then. we Product people come from all kinds of paths, often a kind of a marketing side or the engineering side. And you bring this design flavor in as well. I think probably was a benefit to your work, you know, and thinking about that, that human experience part of products as well. How did that evolve through college or other experiences, kind of this user experience aspect? Uh, because it can get lost along the way or it can really be an asset. Yeah, absolutely. I think I just noticed that, you know, the most successful products and the most successful companies generally over-indexed in the client experience. And there's this aspect of when you have an amazing product, it feels delightful. It feels magical to use. It's so seamless. It has this element of like surprising you with its elegance of like, this is so easy to use. And I, I love creating those moments with technology. And then in my case in particular, you know, straddling the two worlds of you know, software engineering and then design, I've always just been drawn to building technology for creative individuals. Like it's, I find it extremely gratifying and being able to put something in front of them that helps them grow as artists and creatives, help them earn more income uh, and being able to do it with tech is something that you know, it gets me super excited. So my whole, you know, going from college into you know, the real world and working, it, the kind of theme throughout my whole career has been that I've built technology for creative individuals. Okay. You love making these special experiences for people, right? And you talk about, you know, products that delight people, maybe in some unexpected way, or they just provide extra value. And those are ones that get our attention, right? It's one reason why there's so many iPhone fans, um, Mm -hmm. you know, because they just, they find that experience different. I know when I got my first one, the, it was actually the iPod at the time, the unpackaging was, it was like a Christmas present. I mean, it was just, was different than any other experience I'd had, just opening the box, right? Or or like going to Disney World. I don't know what... Are you a person that just notices these and then tries to you know amplify that in your products that you make? Absolutely. I think we I draw a lot of inspiration from the real world. And like Disney is, of course, you know, best in class at creating delight and surprise and being able to think about an experience end to end and the continuum of that. It's a lot of fun. So it's one of those things that I think the best products not only are delightful, but they're just so intuitive, so easy to use. You don't need to be taught how to use them, right? And there's this becomes a truly interactive experience. And I think like one of the first memorable experiences that I had was, was like, this was years and years ago, but when mint.com went into beta, I was just like, this is pretty amazing. Like, like banking websites at the time were terrible. Like I got to see my spend, it broke it down for me. And I was just like, this is quite game changing. Like I don't need to go and kind of audit my credit card statement anymore and being able to see the categories and all that stuff. So I remember like Mint in particular is like one of the products that really stood out as like being able to empower people to have... You know, better control, visibility over major aspects of their lives. Yeah. I think it's a 
catalyst for many products and opportunities for us to make our existing products better is just watching how people interact with the product. And, you know, are they delighted through that experience or not? Are, are there friction points that come up and are there things that we can do to make that better? And the, this Absolutely. isn't really that hard, right? It's not that hard to figure out where there's new value in things. Let's get to your product story because I don't think as a kind of a tech person and then the different product roles that you've had along the way, a lot of those were, you know, software tech sort of focused roles. I don't think that you were moonlighting as a hairstylist, but somehow Correct. you came across this problem and I, I want to hear where that, where did that insight originate? Yeah, absolutely. So at my last company, I worked actually with my co-founder and he was the VP of engineering and I was the VP of product. And there was this week in particular that uh, his name's Sean. Uh, Sean's hair was a complete disaster. And I was like, Sean, you're looking way too much like an engineer right now. Like, go get a haircut. And what he said to me was interesting. He's, and it resonated with me. Uh, he said that he forgot, he kept on forgetting to call his salon to make an appointment during the day. And at night, when he remembered, salon was closed and he's like, yeah, I keep forgetting. And like that hit home with me too. Like I had that same problem and as you know, we were hypothesizing in a, you know, very first world millennial kind of way of this. If these businesses were more convenient, they would just probably make more money. And we just didn't understand why they were seemingly so far behind on the technology adoption curve. Like we were thinking that they were still on pen and paper schedules and we got really curious about this problem. I think the there's this juxtaposition of these businesses helping you look and feel your best, but also being very inconvenient and the cost, like the essentially the user experience of being a customer of these businesses is really there's a lot of friction. And there was this one weekend that Sean and I were hanging out and we ended up walking into a bunch of different salons, spas kind of that were in LA. And we said we were UCLA students working on a research project and asked them about how they handled appointments. We're so surprised by was that all of these businesses were using technology, that 100% of them and nearly every one of the systems that they were using was capable of online booking, where the customer could go and make the appointment themselves. But none of these businesses would embed it into their website, link to it. The businesses wanted the clients to call to make appointments. And we're like, why? <laughs> this doesn't make sense. And so we learned a few fundamental things that is really the premise of our company. The first thing we learned is that these businesses are really low margin businesses, that of a healthy salon or spa is operating on 5% profit margin. Wow. They're generally running on cash flow. And second thing is that the front desk staff has outsized control over the profitability of the business simply by how they place appointments on the calendar. And so when you call to make an appointment, they're doing, they're playing Tetris in real time with the calendar. They're looking to see like, are you new guests? If you're a new guest, they're going to add 15 minutes consultation time. If you're returning, like what service did you get? Who were they with? How long exactly did they take? You know, not every men's haircut takes 
30 minutes or 45 minutes, take 20. And so they're looking to see what exactly was your timing. Have you no-showed in the past? If you've no-showed, they're going to put you towards the end of a day so that if you no-show again, they can cut the staff early and let them go home. And most importantly, they're doing double booking where a, a professional can be with multiple clients at once. And they are making sure that there's no gaps between appointments on the schedule. So they're doing yield optimization on the fly and no scheduling system was capable of having or had any type of business logic on top of the actual schedule. It's just, it was kind of like Calendly or, you know, some of these self-scheduling tools where it's like, just grab a time slot. And that's not actually how these businesses operate. We thought that this was, you know, a pretty lousy position to be in as a business owner where you have to hire an army of front desk staff and have this a lot of friction in the client experience with you know, transacting with the business essentially versus have an online booking. You need less staff, but you're also not going to be profitable. And it's a no-win situation. And we were just thinking that the technology could solve this. And so that's what we ended up building was our MVP product. We found a couple of customers at first and we're building lots of functionality just around the schedule and figuring out ways of how do we optimize the schedule in real time. And what we ended up building was actually a constraint solver. It's So the calendar works as if it's a constraint solver. It's taking all these inputs and then figuring out what's the most ideal time to place this appointment. And so like when you go to book an appointment, it's not showing all available times. It's showing the times that are best for hmm. the business. And doing so, we've also learned that people, consumers are relatively insensitive to the start time of their appointment. They want a haircut on Saturday morning. They don't care it's at, if it's at 9.45 or 10.15 or 11. They like that. They don't, it doesn't matter that much to them. So the, but it matters a great deal to the business, being able to eliminate gaps. So we just thought that there was a real opportunity to build a product of very tangible value that provides aspects to both the consumer and the business owner. And if we could turn it into a win-win situation for the two of them, that it could also be a win for a company. So that's the founding story, essentially. Good. There's a couple of things I want to pull out. So in the beginning of this, I'm thinking there's three things I want to pull out. In the beginning of, the, of this, there was that personal experience of just the friction with needing a haircut, right? The person you were working with, your co-founder now, like, I, I just forget to do this. And my problem is I remember too late because when I want to get into my stylist, she's at least booked out two weeks all the time and usually more. And I just forget. It's like, oh, man, I really need a haircut. Oh, you know, it's going to be at least two weeks. And so I end up just going to the walk-in place that I can. Yeah. And, you know, that's yeah. what I do instead. You cheat. And, and I miss out, right? So I have to find out if she has an app, I can schedule myself. That would actually help. You said you, you told the people that you were doing a research study. I don't know if that was actually the full context or not, right? The, so the we said we were doing, we were UCLA students working on a research project because we, the very first couple of businesses we walked in, they thought we were trying to sell them something. Right. And we were right. like, we're not trying to sell you anything. We're just trying to learn more. So we said we were students and we learned so much after that point. And so a, a good research tactic, you know, if you want to be super scrappy, 
it's just say you're a student and the people want to help students. Yeah. So was, yeah, I want to ask about that, right? The And I love the scrappy approach. We need contact with the people having the problem. So walking into salons and several of them and just finding more, you know, is what you need to do and putting it in a context that feels safe. Right. Little stretch of the truth. You were researching. You just happened to take on the persona of a student to yeah. make that feel better. But you were re researching. And so you found out some of the real friction points there. Absolutely. And it sounded like as you shared that story, what stood, what surprised you was, wow, they're all using technology, right? Yes. Why, why isn't this simpler if they're all using yeah. technology already, right. right? And you talked through some of the friction points. There was really this constraint problem and why the scheduling is so important. I'm curious, and I don't know if you solve for this or not, if this is a part of your target markets that you go after. The person that I use at the salon that I hardly ever see because I keep forgetting, she works in a salon space, but she's not affiliated with the salon, right? Mm -hmm. She does her own scheduling. And I found out, oh, there's actually a lot of people like this, right? They, yeah. they, they do their own scheduling and everything. Did you run across this as well? And I don't know if that's yeah. part of what you solve for. Yeah, we are... Our platform is labor model agnostic. And so it can support businesses that have employees. It can support those that are all what those are called chair or booth renters, where there's a front desk, but each person, professional is their own collecting or their own payments. They're on a 1099 contractor, usually depending on the state. And so there, there's all the, a bunch of different types of business models in the market. And that's something that we've had to learn a lot about and being outsiders to the market. That was, it was pretty foreign. Like I had no idea, like as a consumer that entering into some of these businesses that they weren't like employees of these businesses. Like that seemed, that was an interesting learning. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. That model does exist. Yeah. And the things you uncover by doing the research to better understand the problems they're having. I'm painting with really broad strokes here, and I don't mean to insult anyone that is listening that happens to be the stylist, you know, career field somehow. I regard in general that the, they're probably more on the artistic side, right? There, there's some drive to do this because of that. And my experience is the people that are more are, tend to be more artistic. They don't care so much about other aspects the, you know, scheduling is not really what gets them excited to wake up in the morning to go to their job, right? right? This is a problem that they would like to be easier. Yeah. It's, I think the equivalent of Gmail spam filter, right? Mm -hmm. Like before there were spam filters, you had to manually go through all of this stuff. And now you never have to really look at it. Right. right. And so the, it allows you to just be more productive of the things that truly matter. And you're absolutely right about them being creative individuals that, you know, no one, you know, no person has ever said that the fastest way to become rich is by opening a salon. So they go in, they do it out of passion and love for the craft and the, those almost moments of delight that they create for their clients and being able to see the happiness and their confidence when walking out of the business. And, and so we try to automate as much of the mundane as possible and take that burden off. And so we have evolved from just, you know, a scheduling app to an entire client experience platform it has point of sale, reporting, inventory management, like you name it, it's all in there. And we're following the vertical SaaS playbook, mm -hmm. essentially of going, building a lot of functionality that goes very deep for a specific vertical. 
Yeah, because you're understanding the problem more deeply. And, you know, for listeners, what we're exploring here is really the pain points of any problem. And the more knowledge we have about what those pain points actually are and the people who have those pain points, the better job we can do creating value for them. You said you took the kind of this initial research and you and Sean decided to put together an MVP. Two questions there in the order. How did you decide that this was a problem worth big enough to even waste the time, so to speak? It could have been a waste of time. Pursuing further and building an MVP, you learned so... We'll stop there. We'll do these one at a time. Sorry. How did you decide this was big enough of a market? Yeah. So I don't think we were thinking about, you know, per se, the market size. I think we intuitively understood that hair grows generally (laughs) and that there's a lot of people. For most of us. Yeah. (laughs) Starting to change a little for me, I have to admit. (laughs) But the, that, you know, nails keep growing, hair keeps growing, like the, that people, there's enough people in, in, you know, the world that yep. need personal care services. So we, okay, yes, this is a big opportunity, we thought. What's so surprising to us, though, was the reaction when we were asking these, the front desk or the businesses when we walked in and did the research, the reaction that we got when they talked about the technology that they were using was we got this like visceral negative NPS score type of reaction where like, they're like, mm-hmm. we're on... X, Y, or Z solution. And like, it's the worst. It hasn't been updated in eight years. And it it's like the, that kind of emotional response that we got was, I was like, there's something very powerful here. I'm not sure if it's user error or a lack of modern technology, but there's something very powerful. And over time we have determined that it is not user error that a lot of these systems are legacy. Some were started and created before I was born and that they were deserving of better technology, you know, state-of-the-art technology, and it wasn't available to them. And so this market has for a very long time been overlooked from technologists and venture capitalists as a space that doesn't need their own software. And we fully believe that they need software specifically tailored to them. Yeah, there's always unmet opportunities out there, even in commodity products that we can uncover and do something with. Absolutely. Just pay attention. Absolutely. On the MVP, so you had all this wonderful research about their pain points, right? Heard this from them, things they were dealing with. You thought it was a big enough market. Obviously, they were already paying for some solutions for this and just unhappy with them. So that sounds appealing that they are spending dollars on this. So there's an opportunity mm-hmm. here. And MVPs are very easy to become not minimal, but maximal, right? <laughs> as you look mm-hmm. at the things we could do. You talked about, you know, you really made the MVP as a constraint solver, but take us through your and Sean's thinking of how do you decide what to really put to keep this manageable to know if you're on the right track or not? Yeah, so I would say that the rule of thumb, right, is to create an MVP that is the lightest possible. For us, the barrier to entry with We call it a brownfield opportunity where you're entering into a market where there's a lot of existing solutions that are kind of dead or dying, not innovating. And so we were entering into brownfield opportunity and the barrier to entry for that was actually pretty high. Like we needed to create the full product. There was no way to create, do a Wizard of Oz product where, you know, somebody was behind the scenes 
so we you know, had to do everything from user authentication and privileges through you know, the scheduling and the client database and you name it. So it was a, a pretty, it was not a lean initial MVP. And we knew that going in, we made that deliberate decision that like, this is going to be a bit of a slog in terms of a build out. But we thought that if we got it right and we wanted and we tried to de-risk that MVP as much as possible by doing a ton of interviews and talking with people from the industry, that if we got the MVP right, that it could really snowball from there. And so the our MVP ended up taking about, it's about nine months to build out in earnest. And that was with both Sean and myself doing the coding. I was doing all the designs and doing the front end and Sean was doing all the back end and making it work essentially. And we just were heads down working out of his apartment for about a full nine months and getting constant feedback, but it was not a quick MVP. Tell us about the constant feedback part, right? Because you have all these prioritization decisions that you're making along the way. You might be looking at parity with the competitors and how they did things. You know you because the way you're wired, you know you want to delight the customer at the end of this and do something that really works for them, not just kind of copy and make better what's out there, but really change how they think about this. It's easy to get all that wrong, right? It's easy to go down the path. You and Sean lock yourselves in an apartment for nine months and crank out code and show up with something and it's wrong. Tell us about the kind of feedback you're doing and what you learned through that. Like, I assume you made some things that weren't right along yeah. the way, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so the one problem that we wanted to solve first was the making sure that appointments were booked back to back. Like that, we saw that as the highest leverage value prop that we could provide out of the gate because no one was doing it. And that was where all this pain came from for these businesses. It was that had to be done manually. And so we really focused on what do we need in order to do that? And we were, we made some early decisions on data model thinking ahead of like, okay, if we, if this business does become successful, we're going to be supporting multiple locations and like, is there roll-up reporting and all stuff. And we didn't build any of that from the get-go, but we built the MVP in a way that was compatible to scale. And I do think that is important. And we just had... So that worked out in your favor. You made some smart decisions there. It did. And there's Um, other examples that it does not, right? Because our mm -hmm. vision of scaling is frankly just often wrong. Right. right. And you guys are really smart or you got lucky. Right. Or, you know, some definitely not lucky. Some uh, combination there. Right. Because yeah. often I, I actually I winch a little bit when I hear people perhaps wasting time thinking about scaling. It's like you don't even yeah. know if anyone cares about this thing yet. Right. Right. But that helped you and let you go faster later. Yeah. It wasn't from like a I also cringe whenever there's the I think there's scale in terms of like usage. Uh, but I was thinking scale in terms of more of the business and, you know, what does the future path look like? And, and also we were really tuned into the competitive landscape. We uh, like had, you know, there's a, it's a pretty fraction fragmented market. So we had, you know, a list of like the top 15 solutions and what exactly they could do. And, and so we were able to, you know, through us, the research, direct conversations and observation of these customers to 
you know, competitive Intel, we were able to kind of triangulate what's the lightest MVP possible and what's truly necessary for the MVP versus what can wait for another day. And what was your feedback approach like, you know, during this nine months? What were you doing to know we are headed the right way? Yeah, I think the first thing was just mock-ups. So we would take mock-ups to different salon owners and barbershops and spas that express interest in what we were thinking about. And so that was one of the easiest light, like lighter ways to, to validate, like just by taking some mock-ups and doing some mock-up prototypes where it shows the different flows for like the client booking and appointment. It would show like the different steps. And before we went too deep into building, we definitely did a lot of validation of the ideas through mock-ups as the lightest way. Yeah. And got feedback and made adjustment. Mm-hmm. You were on the right direction. Yeah. Got, this is great. Would love to dig into the story more, but appreciate you giving us information about, you know, the initial insight. And mm-hmm. in some ways, I don't know how, if you think of this as really lucky or not, but you stumbled across a opportunity that sounds terribly underserved, but you mm-hmm. had good competitors that it was kind of easy to figure out how to beat them in some sense, because you actually listened to the customer and watched them and knew what their problems were. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that I've noticed with products managers that sometimes, and even product marketers, that kind of thing, anyone related to products that they're afraid to get in front of the customer, Mm. right? There's always this, like, they want to study from an arm's length and look at the metrics and utilization and really analyze, do a lot of market research, top down kind of stuff. And you can learn so much more in an authentic way, just by meeting your customer in person or observing them. And so the for us, one I attribute one of the successes of our company to my co-founder and I working for the, about the first two years of our company, we worked on location. So I was working the front desk uh, at these businesses and Sean was in the back office or supply closet or an empty salon chair coding new features in real time. And We would observe the business for a great period of time, build kind of the features that we needed to kind of onboard the next most complicated customer. And then we would kind of babysit and make sure everything was working optimally. And so a lot of the things that are in our system are very different than what our competitors look like because we were observing. And the amount of information that we were able to learn just through the first party observation was incredible. So I don't, I can't overstate the importance of that, especially if it, you know, in the B2B side of building products, being able to truly be dialed into what your customer needs yeah. is key. You literally walked in their shoes by, you know, taking on that job, right? At the, yes. the front desk. And if we were on Shark Tank right now, you, you shared that Mark Cuban would be giving you a round of applause. <laughs> yes, that's how you do it, right? You do the work yourself and figure out yeah. what is needed here. Yeah. That's really good. A quick word from our sponsor, which is a, a program that I have put together. And I'm curious, you know, with how Boulevard has grown now, do you have other, do you have product managers, product people there now? Oh, yes. Yeah, Right. absolutely. We have so, a very large product team and not very large. We have a product team of about 20. Yeah, excellent. So I have found, as I've been talking to companies lately about, you know, how do we get our product managers all on the same page and care for them? More often lately has been coming up like, you know, we don't really think about our product managers that much. Frankly, we're not doing a lot to help them get better at their craft and help the product teams perform better. 
And I have the system called the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, the RPM experience, that actually creates some behavior change and motivates people. They help, they feel better about the work they're doing and the job they're doing. We learn this foundation of knowledge that we can share. We can talk about things in a more intelligible way. And we just find all ki kinds of good benefits out of this, right? Trust increases, their knowledge increases, they feel more capable. And it's a virtual experience we do over the course of nine weeks, meeting 75 minutes a week. And if people want to find out more about that, just go to productmasterynow.com slash RPM. It's a great way to provide some care and feeding for your product managers. So, I love that. Love that. And I, I love your story here, Matt. It's just uh, great to see where this has gone and turned into a sizable business now, right? That continues to be growing here. As listeners know, I love a good innovation quote. What do you have for us? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the individuals that I have the most admiration for in like the product space is Randy Pausch. And he was a professor at Carnegie Mellon University of human-computer interaction. He was a Disney Imagineer. He's been all over the place. And he had, he was diagnosed with an all-pancreatic cancer and ended up giving a lecture at CMU about achieving your childhood dreams. And then later that kind of adapted into a book called The Last Lecture. And the quote that one of the quotes that he has in the book is that he talks about obstacles in life. And I think it's applicable pretty broadly, but he talks about obstacles and he calls them brick walls. And he says that the brick walls are there for a reason. They're not there to keep us out. The brick walls are there to give us a chance to show how badly we want something. And I think it's applicable in so many ways, whether you're designing a product, building a startup, uh, or just living life, you're always going to run into setbacks and roadblocks and challenges, adversity. I think I get motivation from thinking of like, this is like testing my will. Like it's, and I find it motivating to think about like, I'm going to figure this out. And I'm not sure how many other people are, would be able to figure this out. Kind of thing. I just found that Randy and his book, The Last Lecture, to be very inspiring. Yeah. To watch the video of The Last Lecture is amazing when he gave that mm. lecture to Carnegie Mellon. And the way he sets it up is sad, but certainly humorous. And he meant for it to be humorous, which is, you know, the title of this lecture series used to be called The Last Lecture. And mm -hmm. then they changed the title somewhere briefly before he was asked to do it. He said, gosh, you know, just before I got to do this, I nailed the title as the last lecture since I'm, I know I'm going to be dying in a few months. Right. And it right. was just very powerful. So. Yeah. Appreciate you sharing the quote too, right? We need to break through walls. And those of us as innovators in organizations, we know there's barriers to making improvements. We need to break through those as well. How can people absolutely. find out about the company, the work you do, anything that you want to share with us? Yeah, absolutely. So you can, our website is joinboulevardblvd.com and you can learn all about the company. We're hiring a lot of folks, even in this climate. We are looking to grow our product team, engineering team, and really almost every function. And we have a careers page up. You can learn more about the company, learn about the roles that we're hiring for. And yeah, if you happen to own any salons or spas or have friends that do, send them our way. We'll hook them up with a great product. Excellent. I know someone I can talk to <laughs> that, yes. that might help me too if they are using this tool. So that's excellent. And if you end up wanting any help onboarding product managers, let me know. 
I will. <laughs> we'll I work will. something out. Love the product story, how you got, you know, stumbled across this, right? Not as a domain expert in any sense, right? But just a need. And you and your partner have been figuring this out and growing the company. Thank you so much for sharing the story with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Chad. This has been great. And for listeners, remember, if you want to find the written summary of everything we talked about and that one page action guide immediately put into action key takeaways that Matt shared with us, just go to productmasterynow.com slash 392. Everyone keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.